What's up and welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel and today we have a different episode. Usually I either have somebody that we talk about topics or we talk about their lives of being black in Atlantic Canada. Now today I wanted to do something different. Um, I wanted to do something that I have other people talking that's not just me but different types of people, people that we've probably seen on TV, people that we've probably seen on the internet, clips that we saw on Instagram, and we're going to dissect the quotes and the meaning of their words. So today we're going to start with somebody that I really admire. I think it's a, a great, great person to, to analyze, which is James Baldwin. Uh, if you don't know, James Arton Baldwin was an American writer and activist. As a writer, he gathered acclaim across various mediums, including essays, novels, and poems and poems. Uh, his first novel was Go Tell on the Mountain, and it's one of Time Magazine's 100 Best English Language Novels, released from 1923 to 2005. If you want to know more about him, you should see, check out the documentary on Netflix called I Am Not Your Negro. Uh... The reason why I think he is pretty special is because he wasn't a celebrity. He was somebody that was an activist, such as a Martin Luther King, such as a Malcolm X. Uh, but the way that he expressed and the logic that he had in his words, it's amazing. So we're going to hear a couple of clips about what he says about racism, uh, about, you know, the economic powers, the status quo. It, it's really, really interesting. So we're going to go with this first clip. Over the course of the 1960s, the FBI amassed almost 2,000 documents in an investigation into one of America's most celebrated minds. The subject of this inquiry was a writer named James Baldwin. At the time, the FBI investigated many artists and thinkers, but most of their files were a fraction of the size of Baldwin's. During the years when the FBI hounded him, he became one of the best-selling black authors in the world. So what made James Baldwin loom so large in the imaginations of both the public and the authorities? Born in Harlem in 1924, he was the oldest of nine children. At age 14, he began to work as a preacher. By delivering sermons, he developed his voice as a writer, but also grew conflicted about the church's stance on racial inequality and homosexuality. After high school, he began writing novels and essays while taking a series of odd jobs but the issues that had driven him away from the church were still inescapable in his daily life. Constantly confronted with racism and homophobia, he was angry and disillusioned and yearned for a less restricted life. So in 1948, at the age of 24, he moved to Paris on a writing fellowship. From France, he published his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, in 1953. Set in Harlem, the book explores the church as a source of both repression and hope. It was popular with both black and white readers. As he earned acclaim for his fiction, Baldwin gathered his thoughts on race, class, culture, and exile in his 1955 extended essay, Notes of a Native Son. Meanwhile, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum in America. Black Americans were making incremental gains at registering to vote and voting. 
but we're still denied basic dignities in schools, on buses, in the workforce, and in the armed services. Though he lived primarily in France for the rest of his life, Baldwin was deeply invested in the movement and keenly aware of his country's unfulfilled promise. He had seen family, friends, and neighbors spiral into addiction, incarceration, and suicide. He believed their fates originated from the constraints of a segregated society. In 1963, he published The Fire Next Time, an arresting portrait of racial strife in which he held white America accountable. But he also went further, arguing that racism hurt white people too. In his view, everyone was inextricably enmeshed in the same social fabric. He had long believed that people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. Baldwin's role in the civil rights movement went beyond observing and reporting. He also traveled through the American South, attending rallies, giving lectures of his own. He debated both white politicians and black activists, including Malcolm X, and served as a liaison between black activists and intellectuals and white establishment leaders like Robert Kennedy. Because of Baldwin's unique ability to articulate the causes of social turbulence in a way that white audiences were willing to hear, Kennedy and others tended to see him as an ambassador for black Americans, a label Baldwin rejected. And at the same time, his faculty with words led the FBI to view him as a threat. Even within the civil rights movement, Baldwin could sometimes feel like an outsider for his choice to live abroad, as well as his sexuality, which he explored openly in his writing at a time when homophobia ran rampant. Throughout his life, Baldwin considered it his role to bear witness. Unlike many of his peers, he lived to see some of the victories of the civil rights movement. But the continuing racial inequalities in the United States weighed heavily on him. Though he may have felt trapped in his moment in history, his words have made generations of people feel known, while guiding them toward a more nuanced understanding of society's most complex issues. This was a clip taken out of the TED Network. If you guys know about TED Talks, they're amazing. Just check them out on YouTube. The Voice is by Christina Greer. Now we're going to hear the voice of the man himself. And we're going to start with this clip that he talks about the separatism in America when it comes to things like churches and other types of organizations and how the white uh, supremacy and how the suppression comes in all shapes and all aspects of the system in America people in this country feel, I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Now, just to give some context, this was a debate in 1969 that he was brought into a TV show to discuss about discrimination in America. This is after the civil rights laws passed and there was sword on sword change in America. And 
James Baldwin was trying to explain how the system was not made for America, for black Americans to be exact, and how white people wanted them to trust a process uh, to know that things would get better, to get some time or to not to trust the system. And he's basically saying, look, uh, we are part of this system and the system doesn't treat us equally. The system separates us. Uh, there's different parts. And even if you say like, oh, we have one God or we have one nation or we have one thing, that's not really the case. It's separated uh, from church to housing to schooling to different things that come to him and he sees the difference that happens when the color of your skin is different. Uh, it's quite logical what he says, uh, but people would not try to engage with him in these types of discussion because he was a very, very logical man. And the fact that his words not only made common sense to the intellectual, but to the average person uh, was incredible. Uh, it was something that, you know, I think, if you read one of his books, you could see the literature and the appeal and the finesse of it, but you can also see the logic of the story. So definitely that's one of my favorite clips. We're going to play another clip uh, that he also talks about the system. Here he talks about the double standard of history, the white history and the black history, how people don't consider people black uh, people like Michael Max heroes or Michael Luther King, but then people that do the same thing, but they're white, they are considered heroes. So let's hear it. If we were Irish, if we were Jewish, if we were Poles, if we had, in fact, in your mind, a frame of reference, our heroes would be your heroes too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. And, it, you know, everyone is very proud of brave little Israel. State against which I have nothing. You know, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not an anti-Semite. But, you know, when the Israelis pick up guns or the Poles or the Irish or any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigger so there won't be any more like him. In this clip, he refers to Nat Turner. And just to give you a little bit of a brief who Nat Turner was, Nat Turner was a preacher, he was a revolutionary, and he started the first uh, slave rebellion in the South. This was in Virginia, and he had a group of rebels and they killed around 55 to 65 people but eventually he was caught and he was hanged and killed now the reason why he says that is that other people have done this too uh but they're just white but if you look at you know nat turner's profile a lot of nat turner's profile says that he was an enslaved african-american preacher who organized and led a four-day rebellion of a slave and free black people in Southampton County, Virginia. Now, one 
of the things that the Nat Turner story brings me to. And there is a movie about it, which was highly criticized. It was called Birth of a Nation. Uh, you can watch it. Uh, it's quite an interesting movie, so uh, you can actually check it out. I think it's on Apple Video, and it's in different. I think it's in YouTube as well. So you can definitely check that movie out. But a lot of the Nat Turner story reminds me of William Wallace. If you don't know who William Wallace is, William Wallace uh, is better known for Braveheart, the Mel Gibson movie that won an Oscar. Now, if you look at the profile of William Wallace, William Wallace is referred to as, first of all, Sir William Wallace, which he was knighted. And he was a Scottish knight who became one of the main leaders during the first war of Scottish independence. Now, he is also uh, cataloged as a patriot and a hero. Now, he did the same thing as Nat Turner. Nat Turner did it in America. William Wallace did it in Scotland, which was part of the Irish. Nat Turner was a slave black man that wanted to be free by the white man. But one is thought as a slave and the other one is a knight and a patriot and a hero. Uh, but Nat Turner doesn't even think, or if you look at the history book, he's not even referred as a hero. He's referred as a revolutionary, as a slave, as a preacher, as an African-American. In no context, he is a patriot, which, again, patriotism relies upon freedom and defending for your rights. Nat Turner was trying to defend for his rights as a person that was born in that land, and he deserved equality. But Again, history doesn't show him like that. So James Baldwin is referring to that. Like if you look at other things in Poland or in, you know, Iran or even in places like Israel, Israel, uh, a lot of these people that started revolutions, they're declared as heroes. They're declared as patriots and people that revolutionized the country. But when you go to America, people that try to do that, they were criminals or they were thugs, or they were slaves, or they were disruptors, or, you know, misbehaving. So it's something to think about how a black man can do the exact same thing as a white man. And we look at this at shootings and mass shootings. If a white kid commits a mass shooting, he, get arrest he gets arrested. Uh, if an unarmed black man goes and has an encounter with the police, he gets killed. And they were both doing a crime. Let's say that they were both doing a crime. Let's say that the black man was uh, doing a crime. He gets caught in the police, even if he, uh, and he should get arrested. Uh, somebody kills people, but happens to be white, and they get arrested. Uh, but the black person gets killed instead of arrested. So it's a very good take of what he says, and it's a very good take on how America and even Canada uh, treats their people of color uh, and how the aspects are not the same. Now, we're going to hear another clip of him. In this clip is quite interesting and it's quite short. Uh, he, it's in an interview. Now, again, just to give you a context about James Baldwin, he left the United States and he left France because he thought that the system was never going to change. And he kept writing and he kept doing essays and things like that. And in this interview, they tell him like, well, uh, it's the 80s now. James Baldwin is within his 60s at this point. Uh, he's almost dying. I think he died of stomach cancer. Uh, and they tell him like, well, 
it's getting better now. So why don't you trust the process or why just so you give it time? And this is the answer that he gives them. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? Here is another clip of James Baldwin talking about the idea and the perception of black people in America. And this ties a little bit to police brutality. You may not relate it at first, but we're going to go and break it down after we hear it. White people go around, it seems to me, with a very carefully suppressed terror of black people. A tremendous uneasiness. They don't know who, they don't know what the black face hides. They're sure it's hiding something. What is hiding? is American history, you know, what, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it's hiding is what white people know they have done and are doing, you know. It's what, you know, white people know well. One thing, and it's the only thing they have to know. They know this, everything else I say is a lie. They know they would not like to be black here. This was a clip taken out of the TED Network. If you guys know about TED Talks, they're amazing. Just check them out on YouTube. The Voice is by Christina Greer. Now we're going to hear the voice of the man himself. And we're going to start with this clip that he talks about the separatism in America when it comes to things like churches and other types of organizations and how the white uh, supremacy and how the suppression comes in all shapes and all aspects of the system in America. James Bowman was a very charismatic person. I think uh, one of the things that I admired about him is the fact that his words were powerful as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, but they were different. But they were not different. They were preaching the same thing. Different methods, just different methods. But they were preaching the same thing. Uh, one thought things would have to do by force. Another one said that things had to be done peacefully. And one just wanted to use his words to make a point and make sure that they understood it in the language that white people thought it was the proper language to speak. And that's what Baldwin did. That's why I think it's uh, one of the persons that doesn't get the merits just because, again, he is such an intellectual and it's such a person that were was also able to, you know, interpret and, and mediate and do all of these things. Even, he didn't even live in America. He left uh, to France and he lived most of his adult life in France because he thought that the system wasn't fair in America. So he just found a solution and he left, but he never left the concept or left the fight. Uh, he found another way to keep the fight going and I think that's what the that's one of the interesting things about him. I'm going to leave you with I think his most historical uh speech. This was in 1965 if I'm not mistaken or 1955. Uh and this was a debate between him and William F Buckley about race. It's 58 minutes long, it's on YouTube, so we're just going to do the what they call the pin drop speech. Uh, it's about, uh, it's not 55 minutes, like it's just a, at least 8 minutes, and I think he says it all in this speech, it's a great speech. Again, 
If you want to know more about him, check uh, I Am Not Your Negro. It's on Netflix. It's a great documentary. I think it's also in different platforms. Uh, it's something that will really make you think about how different parts of black people. And that's what we try to do on this podcast, that not everybody is the same. We all are different. Our color of our skin may be the same, but our personalities, our traits, and it's all different. And because of a system, it lets us say, oh, we're all uh, the same, but we're not equal under the system of the white person. And I think that's something that we want to always try to recognize here. And we want to recognize that this is a fight that we do to different prospects, different aspects of life. Uh, we do it to podcast marching. Uh, we do it to actions, to laws, to advocacy, different ways to do it. And I think James Waltman does say this, and, and he looks into the future, and he looks into the past, brings it all together and explains you why this is not right and why this is not happening. Again, you can check him out. And I really thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, everybody. This is a was a, one of the most difficult episodes for me, uh, just because it's something different. And we're going to try different stuff. Uh, so hopefully, if you like it, please comment and rate. And peace out. What is relevant about this is that whereas 40 years ago when I was born, the question of having to deal with what is unspoken by the subjugated, what is never said to the master. Well, having to deal with this reality was a very remote, very remote possibility. It was in no one's mind. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe, and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true. That you belong where white people have put you. It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter-image in the world. And that image not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government, but through the fact that Africa was suddenly on the stage of the world and Africans had to be dealt with in a way they'd never been dealt with before. This gave an American Negro for the first time a sense of himself beyond a savage or a clown. It has created and will create a great many conundrums. One of the great things that the white world does not know, but I think I do know, is that black people are just like everybody else. One has used the myth of Negro and the myth of color 
to pretend and to assume that you are dealing essentially with something exotic, bizarre, and practically according to human laws unknown. Alas, it is not true. We are also mercenaries, dictators, murderers, liars. We are human too. What is crucial here is that unless we can manage to establish some kind of dialogue between those people whom I pretend has paid for the American dream and those other people who have not achieved it, we will be in terrible trouble. I want to say at the end, at the last, is that that is what concerns me most. We are sitting in this room and we are all, at least we like to think we are, relatively civilized. And we can talk to each other at least on certain levels. So that we could walk out of here assuming that the measure of our enlightenment or at least our politeness has some effect on the world. It may not. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard and did not hear, and possibly will never hear, the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn with which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. What is dangerous here is the turning away from, the turning away from anything any white American says. The reason for the political hesitation in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. And I am I'm a grown man and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be. But I don't know and neither does Martin Luther King. None of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored who don't believe anything the white world says and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. It seems to me that the city of New York, for example, this is my last point, We've had Negroes in it for a very long time. If the city of New York were able, as it has indeed been able, in the last 15 years to reconstruct itself, tear down buildings and raise great new ones, downtown and for money, and has done nothing whatever except build housing projects in the ghetto for the Negroes. And of course the Negroes hate it. Presently, the property does indeed deteriorate because the children cannot bear it. They want to get out of the ghetto. If the American pretensions were based on more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, 
it would not mean for Negroes, when someone may, says urban renewal, that Negroes simply are going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. If the American Negro had not been present in America, I am convinced that the history of the American labor movement would be much more edifying than it is. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream, because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you.